1: This is The Green Line, a five-part miniseries focusing on the near-term geopolitical implications of climate change. and I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. In the 1200s, the Mongol Empire was expanding right across the Asian steppe, and every society they came up against would quickly fall, and many cities during this era would be simply wiped off the map. Stories of the Khan's brutality would quickly spread mostly from survivors who'd escaped and seen it firsthand, And these survivors would travel and warn the next city they approached, begging local rulers to understand the ferocity that was on its way. Now, after the Mongols had defeated their foes in modern-day Central Asia, kings and rulers from across Asia would have these survivors and experts come into their court and give them first-hand accounts of what they'd seen in their towns and cities. And although all of these kings would be given the same information, each would react differently. And I want to focus on three in particular. The king of the area that would be roughly modern day Iran, the king of an area that would roughly be Iraq, and a king of what would roughly now be Vietnam. We could use the ancient names here, but for geographical context, we'll use the modern successor state's names. The Iranian king met with a survivor and didn't believe the warnings. In fact, he ignored them and did nothing. And when the Mongols did arrive, it was too late to do anything. The survivor had been right and his empire was wiped from the map. The Iraqi king, after seeing what happened in Iran, did eventually take it somewhat seriously, but let the royal court debate the issue too long, and in the end, just decided to barricade up the city, put their head in the sand, and just hoped it would all go away. The Mongols would arrive and lay siege to Baghdad, and when they broke the siege and entered the city, they burnt it almost completely to the ground. The city that was once the centre of global knowledge was completely destroyed. The third king, the ruler of what is now Vietnam, took a different approach. Himself and his court took the Mongol threat very seriously, and the ruler would turn to his military generals, many of which had fought the Mongols in China years before. The ruler of Vietnam would recruit a large army, rallied anyone he could, built navies in preparation, destroyed certain bridges to funnel the enemy, and much more. At the time, many saw this as an overreaction, throwing your entire nation's weight behind the advice of a few experts. So when the Mongols did arrive, they were just as brutal as the experts had suggested. And yes, the Vietnamese did suffer greatly in these battles. But unlike the Iranians or the Iraqis, the king beat them back. The preparation, the seriousness he gave it, and the head start he'd taken advantage of to prepare for this onslaught meant he knew what was to come. It would culminate in his nation being one of the only nations to stare the Mongols down, fight them, and have their society live to tell the tale. Fast forward to today and we're in a similar situation. Our national leaders are having modern scientists burst into their courts, warning not of Mongols, but of climate change. Now, I'm not here to debate is climate change real or whether climate change is man-made or not. What I'm here to do is take a look at the military and geopolitical implications of what is to come, to undertake a modern equivalency of listening to the experts and what the Mongols did in China and see how we can plan our defences ourselves. And much like the Vietnamese, the military, oddly enough, are at the forefront of this issue. Whilst TV debates and political talk shows still view climate change as a debate, for decades, the military has been preparing for this, staying above politics, actually running the data, and writing the plans. And that's what we're going to be diving into in this series. The Green Line will be a five-part series, focusing on everything from the US military response to climate change to burgeoning conflicts over water scarcity to what a post-fossil fuel economy would look like to nations who get 90% of their capital from selling fossil fuels. As always, we'll be speaking with experts from across the globe, in the White House, former national leaders, the UN and the military, but there's no way we could have gotten enough background knowledge to even engage in those conversations or tackle this series alone. I can tell you the cost of moving a tank division from Norfolk to France, but I personally can't tell you what a two degree temperature change does to a coral reef. So that's why we turned to the experts, and to make this entire series possible, we teamed up with Mission Climate Project, who are a specialty climate change modeling group. That way we could combine the knowledge of our security and political teams here at the red line and match it with their expert climate data teams, to create what we have here in this five-part series. This series is also not here to talk about 2050 like most people discussing this subject tend to do. 2050 is 28 years away, and 28 years ago, we were still fighting in Yugoslavia, dealing with the collapse of the USSR, so a lot can change in three decades. This series instead will be firmly focused on this decade, and how nations are preparing for climate change right now. What we have here with this five-part series is a grim yet hopeful geopolitical roadmap for the remainder of the decade, and we're thrilled to finally be presenting this series on the show's three-year anniversary. But for now, let's take a look at how the world's best funded military is looking to combat the most pressing issue it has ever faced. And to lay out exactly which theatres the US is already making preparations in, and how the military's role differs greatly from the civilians, we turn to our first guest. Part 1.
2: A Creeping Catastrophe Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: We can see the effects of climate change in big ways and small ways, you know, certainly in the United States, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some big effects with storms like Hurricane Ian, that had a great deal more heavy rainfall and storm surge than was normal. And I think you'll see that being attributed to climate change. As the days unfold. If you live in California, for example, and you've, and you've had far more fires, your fire season is year-round now, people are having to move because of it. I mean, there are big effects and then there are lots of little ones. Everyone's seeing it."
1: Sharon Burke is the president of the Ecospharies Group, as well as a member of the Climate Security Expert Network. She also served in a number of senior positions with the US government, including Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy. In addition to this, she was also formerly the Vice President of the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Advocacy Director for Amnesty International USA. And we're thrilled to have her on the program today.
0: For the Department of Defense, their core mission is, is national security, or to fight and win the nation's wars. You know, part of fighting and winning wars is also deterring war. So there's lots of flavors here. We keep out of war, but also once we're in it, we have to win. So the question for them is, what does climate change mean to that core mission? And for them, it means several different things. It means how does it affect the operating environment that they that they have to work in? So for example, are their bases affected? Hurricane Ian that I just mentioned that hit Florida, one of the big US military bases that was right in the path of that hurricane was MacDill Air Force Base, which is where US Central Command and US Special Operations Command are both headquartered. So those are two major military entities in the United States that oversee combat operations. So for them to be right in the, in the path of a hurricane is no small thing. So the military needs to think about that kind of thing, like how, how is climate change gonna affect their ability to operate, whether it's at home in their own installations or out in a world that's seeing some radical shifts in conditions.
1: And what sort of missions are we talking about? What's top of mind in this conversation?
0: For example, one military mission is disaster relief, whether that's at home where military supports civil authorities or around the world where they also will be asked to support other countries when they are looking ahead at what kind of uh, demand there might be for humanitarian and disaster relief, that's something that's increasing. So that's a direct impact to their missions. But then there are um, direct geopolitical impacts. So for example, the conditions in the Arctic are changing and in fact are changing faster than anyone anticipated. And that means that all the countries in the littoral, which includes Russia, are seeing a radically different thing, a, a whole new ocean opening up that has not been there in human history not in recorded human history. So that means a whole new line of communication through the area. And it means new resources, potentially. It means new transit, new passage. The Chinese are building the capability to go through there. That's a whole new geopolitical direct impact. And then the third area that's really interesting is all the indirect impacts. So countries that are already struggling, that have maybe not enough economic growth, that are having trouble with poverty, that maybe have corruption or governments that are having trouble functioning. When you add in sort of a pervasive effect, like very high heat or much worse floods or a much worse and more prolonged drought, that kind of pressure on a system that's already somewhat fragile can drive it into crisis. And crisis can look like just human misery, greater human misery misery and suffering, or it can look like people leaving, forced migration, and then they have to go to neighboring countries or somewhere else when they probably would rather not, most people would rather stay home, or it can look like civil unrest. And in really the worst circumstances, it can mean violence and conflict. So that question about how climate change might put pressure on underlying uh, factors that can lead to unrest, suffering, and conflict. That's hard to grasp, hard to understand, hard to document, but it's certainly a concern."
1: The US does have very impressive disaster relief capabilities, and a military equipped and designed to fire multiple fronts anywhere on the planet. But what are the upper limits of those relief capabilities? If we see even just a little bit worse of a year and we see flooding in Pakistan, whilst also at the same time having fires in Brazil and a hurricane in Haiti, are we likely to see the U.S. ramp up their relief capabilities to meet the escalating demand, or is it more likely that Washington will simply just start picking and choosing winners and that Washington might just start abandoning some theaters?
0: I think, you know, your question is is a tough one that I do think governments all around the world are going to have to take into account, which is as the tempo of severe crises increases, how are we going to handle that? I think, I personally think part of the answer is that not just, you know, as you're implying, um, you know, that we have to figure out some methodology for triage, but more also, we have to do a lot more. We have to change the way we think about these kinds of disasters, and we're going to have to invest a good deal more on the front end on resilience and on prevention and trying to minimize the impact of disasters, because there is no one in the world that has enough capacity to respond if we just wait and see what happens. You know, we've already seen that domestically in the United States with a, a number of really severe disasters in the last few years. So we're gonna to have to think differently about about how you anticipate and mitigate the risks and the damage from disasters.
1: Well that's a point I think a lot of people really miss in this conversation, the use of the US National Guard. What was once a backup force of part-timers who would very rarely see much action has now already become a year-round disaster relief group. Throughout summer in the US, they are deployed to fight fires in multiple states, often 20 hours at a time. In spring, they are often deployed cleaning up after hurricanes, and in winter, they often get deployed to keep the peace when power grids go down, or try and patch crucial infrastructure that's knocked out during this season. The US National Guard and the Army Corps of Engineers are being used year-round at the moment. These organizations are being stretched to the brink. So if these climate events do start to get worse or even just more frequent, how much additional capacity does the National Guard actually have left? Are we already redlining with our last line of defense?
0: It's a great question. And and I think the National Guard already is bearing the brunt, bearing the burden of uh, an increase in disasters. One of the really important questions when asking about National Guard capacity is... Is that they are also an important warfighting reserve. So if there is some kind of conflict, you know, and I know that there was a lot of hope in the world that major nation conflict was over, but I think what we've seen happening in the heart of Europe right now is a reminder that you can never count war out, war happens. And so let's say that the United States needs its its uh, reserve forces to defend itself from a military threat. The National Guard is is on the hook. Even in the last 20 years of conflict in Iraq and in Afghanistan, the National Guard did many, many rotations into both of those theaters. So the real question is, does the Guard have the capacity to do everything that we're going to need at home for disaster relief and also be ready to deploy to support national security missions? And I think that that is a a very important question that I do not believe that US leadership has answered or even really studied as much as they need to."
1: We can see numerous correlations across history between disaster events, whether they be natural or brought on by war, and political exacerbations and radicalization as well as revolutions and even civil wars. Natural disasters often set the stage for revolutions and political turmoil, and I'm sure the US government is more than aware of this as well. So are there any theaters in particular that Washington is keeping a particularly close eye on when it comes to climate change?
0: So I think climate change affects everywhere, US interests and global interests everywhere in different ways and that the US national security strategy and the national defense strategy needs to take account of that everywhere. So you say Central America and South America also, of course, in terms of partners and allies, but also, you know, Mexico is certainly one of the most important partners and allies for the United States of America. But all throughout that region, you're also seeing that climate change is putting pressure on some governments that are having trouble, and you're seeing a lot of people move. And there's going to be more of that. And again, the United States needs to be ready for that world. So South America, Central America is one kind of challenge. Africa is a different one every place is a top concern on some level. I mean, I realize you still have to prioritize, but for example, you know, the United States national security strategy has been consistently identifying competition with China. So strategic competition, I think, is how the current administration is calling it as as a number one priority. So climate change is relevant to that conversation too, for all kinds of reasons, including that as glaciers are melting across the Himalayan region, it's going to change the water supply around the area. As precipitation and heat changes, it's going to change China's agricultural productivity and production, uh, even sea level rise. All of those things are going to affect some of their bases, like those islands they've built in the South China Sea. Why, you know, The demand for critical minerals for renewable energy is going to increase competition for those suppliers. So climate change is also going to affect the competition between the United States and China in ways that are potentially very significant. And then um, Europe, you know, what's happening right now with Europe's energy security situation is sort of a harbinger. Europe is again such an important strategic and trade partner for the United States, and then South Asia is also strongly affected by climate change. There's no place where it isn't relevant, so I think the question is more that a country like the United States needs to look at all of its strategic priorities and ask how climate change is relevant, rather than where is it relevant, but integrated into all of their considerations.
1: I do understand that this is a global issue, but what do you think will be the main priorities for the US over the next five to six years?
0: There are at least two things that they should be concerned about as a priority. And the first is the geostrategic impact of climate change and getting a better handle on what that looks like. To my mind, there continues to be a bit of a gap between climate modeling for scientific information and what we know about the science of climate change and the potential impacts and then what someone who's implementing policy needs to know in order to make good choices about investments and i think that's true whether you're a city planner trying to decide where to put a culvert or a road or you're a military organization trying to understand your risk profile and what you need to be prepared for we need better information so i think one of the top things they need to do is understand better how climate change is going to affect the international security environment and how that should inform their preparations and their priorities and their thinking about the future. And then the second is the United States Armed Forces cannot operate effectively in the world without bases. They can't train, you know, they can't deploy, they can't be supported unless they have access to their support network. And they need to understand better how climate change is a threat to those bases and operating areas, and they need to build their resilience to it. And it has to take this into account. So for example, every year, there are military construction dollars committed to, uh, to the defense department by Congress. None of those dollars should be spent. Not $1 should be spent without knowing how it's going to contribute to resilience. So if you're going to build something new, it needs to be resilient. So I think we talked at the outset, they've, they've had some pretty powerful experiences in recent years with what this looks like, both from uh, as far as damaging their bases. So Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida was pretty much wiped out and they've rebuilt it to be resilient to future hurricanes. So, you know, they're proving that it's possible. Well, we'll see. I mean, if Tyndall takes another direct hit, we'll get a natural experiment and how well these uh, methodologies work. Um, I think the third area that they need to take into account is a really hard one for a military organization and really for all of us in the way that we live, which is they need to understand how climate change is gonna affect the world. They need to understand how it's gonna affect them directly and the way they operate. And they need to understand ultimately that that's not going to be enough, that we cannot adapt our way out of this problem, that if we don't cut greenhouse gas emissions on an urgent basis, then there's no way to be ready for what's going to happen, or rather, it's a completely different world. And, and then the military role is really something different. Cutting greenhouse gas emissions, I think, is, is hard for all of us. And it will be hard for the armed forces as well. And uh, the Army, the US Army just put out a climate implementation strategy that does not shrink from addressing that and from looking at how they can cut their own emissions. I say it's hard because uh, the US armed forces are, you know, whether it's ships or combat vehicles or um, aircraft and especially aircraft, they are designed to use liquid fuels they are optimized to use fossil fuels. So that's a lot of equipment, you know, a, a trillions of dollars of investment in equipment that's designed for that kind of fuel. And sometimes those, those pieces of equipment last for decades. You know, they're just replacing uh, a, a line of aircraft now, KC-135s, a refueling aircraft, that some of them are more than 50 years old. So it's no small thing to look at how to, replace or upgrade or retrofit a capacity that large and then also to figure out how to keep it working in the most extreme circumstances that human beings experience, which is war."
1: Even if the US does jump fully on board with this, how do you convince your partners? People like Saudi Arabia who will be far worse off in a post-fossil fuel economy, or partners like the Bulgarians who frankly don't have the money to upgrade their military hardware to the latest and greatest technology? How do you get those kind of guys on board?
0: Well, I think for a country such as Bulgaria, if they want to be a partner to NATO nations that are embracing these innovations, they will have to embrace it. So I don't think there will be much choice if they want to be a partner on a battlefield that's electrified as opposed to using fossil fuels. They will have to play ball, so to speak. But for for petro states, you know, it's a really tough question, uh, including within the United States, by the way, we are one country, but we're made up of, of, you know, states with a lot of independent personality and independent economic basis. So we have our own petro states such as Alaska, Louisiana, um, Texas, within the United States, where their state level economy also depends heavily on, on the production of fossil fuels. It is a really difficult question. The energy transition is going to be you know, really problematic for Saudi Arabia and for for all the countries that depend on on oil and gas. And I think that they and, and all of the consumer nations need to incorporate that into the energy transition too. Not just what are we transitioning to, but what are we transitioning away from. So the Saudis are certainly well aware that they need to transition their economy and they're, you know, actively looking for other ways to to find economic strength than just fossil fuels.
1: So I'm seeing the notion more and more at the moment that climate change will mostly just affect and disrupt the poor nations and will have a minimal impact on the developed world. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: It's not just some poor country somewhere else, it's right here. But these more pervasive less tangible effects about, you know, how does changing disaster affect your ability to get insurance, affect your economy. Um, those things we're all gonna feel, whether they're happening right here in your own town or across the world, it's gonna affect us all. Now, the other question are things that we take for granted, like food availability and the and the food on your shelf. Those things can also be affected in ways that we're gonna start seeing. So it, this is gonna hit everybody.
3: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own.
0: That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So we know that climate change is adding fuel to the problems already beginning to spark across the planet. Water is already becoming commodified and fought over as a resource. These weather events are already impacting US air bases and countries are watching their economies splinter with rivers drying up in nations like China or a third of the country going underwater like we saw this month in Pakistan. Some countries are preparing for climate change and others are not ready at all. So, how is the US in particular preparing for climate change? What steps are they putting in place and what concrete measures are they relying on to get them through this crisis? Well, to answer that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2
2: Threat Multipliers.
3: So climate change is affecting us already, we have temperatures that have increased the energy that is in the atmosphere is causing different weathers uh, to occur than occurred in the past. So we're already seeing changes and the equilibrium is disrupted Uh, with the equilibrium disrupted things that people have prepared for in the past built their own resilience to previous climates, is now not optimized for what we're going to see. And so you're gonna have different natural disasters and some more severe. You're going to have different weather patterns. So we're already seeing that. It will only get worse.
1: John Conger is the Director of the Center for Climate and Security, as well as Senior Advisor to the Council on Strategic Risks and Senior US Advisor to the International Military Council on Climate and Security. John also previously served as the Principal Deputy Under-Secretary of Defense at the United States Department of Defense, as well as assisting as the Under-Secretary of Defense, directly advising SecDef on all budgetary and financial matters, including the development and execution of the DoD's annual budget of nearly $500 billion. Prior to this role, he also served as Deputy Comptroller and oversaw energy, installations, and environmental policy throughout the DoD, as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installations, and Environment, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
3: I look at this from multiple perspectives uh, i think that the from a domestic point of view we're going to see wildfires and we're going to see hurricanes that are more aggressive than we've seen in the past we don't have wildfire season anymore it's all year long and uh, that the hurricanes that we see are more energetic they have more rain and they have higher winds and that has an impact on domestic installations uh, and we have several examples of that so uh, that's part of the dynamic, and I'm an installation guy, so you, you, uh, you, you know, that's why you, you get me leading with that part, piece of the puzzle. I used to uh, be the person overseeing all of DOD's military installations. But that's just one part of the puzzle. If you look around the world, what the DOD has to deal with here domestically is only a microcosm of what everybody else is going to have to deal with at different places in the world. And the, the severity of the impact is going to be proportional to the capacity of the government institutions to be able to deal with the problems. And what I mean by that is those nations which have less capacity, that have less money, that have less resources, that, whose uh, governments are less organized or, or more you know, corrupt or whatever, are unable to respond to the needs of, of their citizens are going to have worse impacts uh, because of uh, their relative lack of capacity. And so the places with more fragile governments are the places where you will see the, the impacts more severe sooner. And that means we're gonna go look at Northern Africa and the Middle East and South Asia in Southeast Asia, as places where you already have challenges and climate change adds a new stress to the system that is already stressed. And that's the challenge that that we face. And that's why some people call this a threat multiplier.
1: Well, can you take us through that? What is a threat multiplier?
3: You know, climate change itself is one... Problem, but when you layer it on top of an already stressed system that it has challenges with stability to start with, then it multiplies that threat. It's a it you know it's a DoD term for those who don't pay attention to uh, the pint these types of things. there's a term called uh, force multiplier, which essentially when you add certain capabilities to a force, they act as uh, with more capability as if a large, as if they're a larger force. So they have you know communications, intelligence and so on and so forth, these are force multipliers. Uh, when you have a threat environment which is already facing instability, already facing problems, and you add climate stress to that situation, those threats are magnified. And that's why we refer to it as a threat multiplier.
1: I think one of the best ways I had it explained to me was the Lake Chad Basin becoming two degrees hotter isn't a problem. People can just put sunscreen on if it's two degrees hotter. Where the problem does come in is that two degrees then drying up the lake. So there's now that same 17 and a half million people competing for half the water supply they had before. Now the US is preparing for quite a lot of these sort of domestic eventualities. And reading DOD reports, you keep seeing the phrase building resiliency measures. It pops up again and again throughout all the reports. Can you go us through what it means and how the US is preparing for climate change at the moment as compared to a nation like Algeria, for example?
3: So, so I would say this, um, the US is starting to prepare. It is a long process, and it was a mistake to think of it as something that happens overnight. And so is the U.S. prepared? Not really. Is the U.S. uh, thinking about preparing? Yes. Is the U.S. starting to plan to do stuff? Yes. Uh, Which is farther along than anybody else's. And so, you know, it's interesting. The DOD has been thinking about climate resilience for more than a decade. And the intelligence community has been looking at this uh, this problem for longer than that. In the US, we have a polarized environment uh, on the issue of climate change. Historically, it's been uh, it's gone up and down. But but generally uh, talking about climate change is a a polarizing issue. Uh, The place where it hasn't been as polarized is in the resilience of the military to climate impacts. And so you find Republicans and Democrats working together to protect the military from climate change. Uh, as we look at a variety of legislative provisions over over the last five, six years. And so we have found this consensus, which has emerged uh, in part because there was a you know, an interest on some parties to work more on climate change and they couldn't get anything else through. And so this was the part that that was able to we were able to make progress on in other countries where climate change was more recognized as a threat and there weren't as many uh, issues with regard to, you know, passing uh, regulations on carbon and so on and so forth. The military was less of a driver uh, and it lagged. And so because it wasn't needed in order to move the conversation, the the militaries in a lot of other countries, Western democracies and so on and so forth, um, have not necessarily made as much progress because they didn't uh, have to. Um, It wasn't the driver of the conversation. In the U.S., it has been a lot of the conversation in in recent years. And and so uh, if we look at where the U.S. military is today, they are making some progress but it is not yet holistic. The planning is holistic, the strategies are holistic, but the integration of progress is not yet there. Uh, if you look at countries in, uh, like you mentioned Algeria, or uh, you know across Africa, they, they are only barely starting to think about this. And, uh, and whenever you start to think about climate and security, you have to put it in the context of both your climate policy and your security policy, and it's going to have a different answer every place.
1: We don't usually talk US domestic politics here, but I am curious to ask, as you work right in the belly of the beast with both Republican and Democratic administrations. In front of the cameras, there's still a lot of climate denialism or climate scepticism, and for a number of these reps and senators, there is still staunch opposition to prevention measures, with one side of the political aisle tend to be a little more sceptical than the other. But are you saying that behind closed doors, these same congressmen and senators, all acknowledge the situation and instead encourage and supply the DOD to try and tackle this
3: head-on. I think that the Trump administration is very instructive. In 2017 and 2018, we had the Trump administration in the White House and we had a Republican majority in Congress. And in that environment, Congress passed legislation declaring climate change to be a direct threat to the national security of the United States, and President Trump signed it. The DOD uh, looks at this not as a political issue, but as a, a mission issue. How can I continue to do my job in the face of these new challenges? And you told me I have to go defend the country, and so let me do it. That's the dynamic we're dealing with here. And so what we found in that environment, and then subsequently, when Congress flipped, and the you know, and the administration was still, you know, moving forward. Things happened in DoD on climate change. Resilience was still a priority. Maybe they didn't talk about it in terms of, you know, the climate per se, but they were still working on resilience. They would put out resilience handbooks. But you know, in 2020, the Trump secretary the Trump administration's Secretary of the Army put out a climate change directive. These things were happening in DOD during the Trump administration. So so I do not believe that political wins will undermine the ability of the military to prepare for doing its job in the face of this or any other threat. That's that's an important dynamic to recognize, that this has been a relatively bipartisan issue. It is, it's where the Venn diagram overlaps, right? You know, if a bunch of people over here care about climate change and a bunch of people over there care about the military, there's a significant overlap where they can all work together. And they, they have. We have, we have seen it happen.
1: So as it stands, we're relying on the DoD to lead the charge on climate change and actually carry out the policy needed, whilst the debate still carries on elsewhere on talk radio and Twitter. But whilst the DoD is tackling this, it is also one of the largest emitters of CO2 anywhere on the planet, putting out more emissions than large parts of the world combined. If the DoD is trying to tackle this, is there a way for the military to go carbon neutral, or will that compromise military capabilities and that always comes first.
3: So the US military's carbon footprint is driven by fuel, not electricity. Electricity is certainly there, it is a non-zero part of it, but the biggest part of it is fuel. If you unpack the DoD's fuel use, it is not the tanks and the trucks that drive the numbers, it is the aircraft. Uh, And the aircraft are dominant in this picture. So aircraft fuel and the DoD's carbon footprint track each other and, and they are, Uh, and aircraft fuel probably represents more than half of the, the DoD's carbon footprint alone. However, everybody's seen the studies that compare the U.S. DoD's emissions to small countries in Europe that everybody's heard of, whether it's Portugal or Sweden or Denmark or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is those are small countries. They have populations that are similar to the total number of people working for the U.S. military and they have GDPs that are similar to the DoD budget. They are small, com- as countries go, and, and so as a consequence, uh, it is a comparison for effect and not necessarily value. In that context, though, it's important to say, if, I, if my f- carbon footprint is driven by aircraft, let's compare it to other aircraft. And so if you compare uh, the U.S. Air Force to American Airlines, American Airlines has a much bigger carbon footprint. If you compare the DoD to all the US carriers combined, the the DoD is dwarfed by uh, the civilian aircraft industry and and even just the US carriers. And so the challenge isn't necessarily the military, the challenge is how do you decarbonize aircraft? And so uh, physics gets in the way a little bit uh, with regard to batteries and energy densities and so on and so forth. Fundamentally, if you're going to decarbonize aircraft, you have to change your fuel input and you have to come up with sustainable aviation fuel in quantity that can solve this problem. It is not about changing the aircraft necessarily, although you can make them more efficient. It is, if you're really going to solve the problem as opposed to make things better, but just solve it completely, you have to change your fuel input. And uh, and that is a, Folks know how to make sustainable fuel. They don't know how to make sustainable fuel in quantity yet. And that is a technical problem that people are getting after and they just haven't solved yet.
1: I mean, the US does have impressive disaster relief capabilities, but what are the operational limits to those capabilities? And if we start to see multiple disasters across multiple continents, is the US likely to pick and choose some winners and leave some to their own fate or rapidly ramp up the disaster relief capabilities in an exponential
3: manner? That's a really good policy question. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that the military gets asked to respond to natural disasters because the military is frequently the only entity that can respond to natural disasters. They have the logistics capability, they have the transportation capability, they can move contingency bases across to set up, you know, command centers and so on and so forth. The things that you need to respond to a disaster are the things the military has in order to respond to a conflict. And so in that context, you know, already the, the military, our military, other militaries are asked to respond to natural disasters on a regular basis uh, around the world. And we do. The capacity may be challenged over time and probably will be challenged over time. As this gets harder and as this begins to have a bigger and bigger impact on readiness, the, the policymakers are going to have to figure out you know what the what the response is do they increase the capacity of the military to be able to deal with natural disasters or uh, do they start to say no in the response to the requests i tend to think at the the front end it's going to be the former it's going to be how do i increase my capacity to respond and there's a good actual analogy uh, so, so when the, the U S military responds to disasters, it eats readiness. It, it can you know, people are ready for a particular conflict or, or they're ready to respond if in the case of a conflict. And when they respond to the disaster, um, it tends to break units up. They have to pull people from one and pull people from another. And it, it undermines the ability to respond to a conflict in the future. If that's going to happen, they have to go back through training and so on and so forth. And so. There, are, there have been tr- training brigades that have been pulled together separately because the response to support uh, to, to other militaries for training was done the same way. And they pulled from other pulled from a bunch of different units and they broke readiness and they, they caused problems when they were trying to respond to this sort of thing but they, they created a, a set of brigades within the army a small number uh, and not huge units but that would be used to respond to those kinds of requests if there if there was a need to do you know foreign assistance and so on and so forth with training and support i think that that model is not a bad one for disaster response one of
1: the other issues brought up in the discussion is about supply chains which we'll be covering some of in this episode other parts of this conversation like rare earth minerals and semiconductor supplies will be covered further in detail in our episode on China, but for now, how vulnerable do you think the US supply chain is at the moment and going forward? And how do you think it will be affected by climate change?
3: That is a great question. Well, and, and, and they started asking that question. You can see in executive orders that they've asked for supply chain analysis and, and, and to sort of dig into what, what do we need to do? So I don't think they have the answer for that yet. Um, I think I would clarify part of your question, though, in that it's not just U.S. supply chains that have been stressed uh, by by COVID. Uh, it's global supply chains that have been stressed by COVID. And in the same way as climate stress uh, has particular impacts in parts of the world that are critical to supply chains, we will have to contemplate the the impact on on the U.S. economy and, and et cetera, et cetera, of things that happen on the other side of the world. And so. As we think about climate impacts and climate stresses, as we think about pandemics, as we think about instability in general, we have to come to the realization that instability and stress on the other side of the world affects the things we buy here. That somebody who goes to their grocery store or goes to the Home Depot or goes to wherever they go to down the street to pick up whatever they expect to see or order something on Amazon, the availability of products is going to be affected in, by uh, things that happen on the other side of the world. And climate change cannot help but have an impact on that, and especially as it, as it continues to impact some of these nations that have a little more fragility, but are places that, you know, U.S. companies produce their goods or produce or have as suppliers to U.S. goods. And so uh, I think that that we will see that the entire world is interlinked in that context And, and we cannot avoid problems by looking inward because we, we need the rest of the world in order to continue to live the, the life that we have built here and expect to continue.
1: Historically, there's a pretty distinct trend between disasters unfolding, society fracturing, and out of this, revolutions, coups, dictatorships, and civil wars spring forth with good regularity. Is the US expecting to see people turn to dictators and strongmen over the next decade when their countries run short on water, or don't recover well from natural disasters? And if this does happen, are we expecting the US to get more involved in these countries' politics?
3: We had a study that we did a few years ago, it was a security threat assessment of global climate change, where we looked at the stressors of a global temperature of two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and four degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. and As we looked at those scenarios, a pattern emerged in the analysis where we saw that there would be more instability, more ungoverned areas, uh, more uninhabitable areas, and that was going to, to lead to more chaos. I think that it is important to recognize that climate change alone does not cause conflict. However, we have seen that when you have a combination of a lack of government capacity and a lack of government legitimacy with climate stress, so basically the government is unable to respond to the needs of its citizens, then, then you see a more likely crisis emerge. And so one of the things that we can do, if we cannot hold back the tide of climate change, one of the things that we can do is look for places that we need to shore up the legitimacy and the capacity of fragile governments in order to avoid those crises. Uh, I think that's, that's part of the dynamic we're all facing.
1: Can you explain what you mean by shoring up the legitimacy of these governments? Is this the US deploying troops into the country to defend the administration? Is this just sending arms or is this just aid? Can you take us through what you mean by that?
3: There is assistance that can be provided before you get to that point that's going to be important important to reduce the likelihood of a crisis like that. It could be funding for foreign aid. It could be uh, capacity building. It could be democracy building. You you know, there is a range of things that one can do to help out uh, governments that are struggling because they have no shortage of problems. But you got to pick and choose. You're picking and choosing the places that you want to uh, make sure that a crisis doesn't emerge in that location. And, you you know, it's not... Dissimilar from the sort of broad outreach during the Cold War, uh, that you know we would go in and you know try and say you know provide assistance to countries around the world before the Soviets did, and now China is providing assistance around the world and gaining influence. And uh, you know I think the U.S. is uh, would be remiss to ignore that fact and to unilaterally abdicate. Uh, the the sort of influence competition that that seems to be emerging.
1: All of this, whether it's propping up friendly governments or sending aid or sending arms, or even doing disaster relief will cost the U.S. taxpayer money, to which some people will suggest that the U.S. would be better off simply pulling up stakes when things get tough, retreating back to their own territory, bunkering down and letting the world solve their own problems. But what's your response to that? How would global stability handle an isolationist United States? Is the solution to that problem at all that simple?
3: Well, uh, my response to that is that anybody who thinks any the answer to any problem is simple probably doesn't understand the problem. So these things tend to be complicated uh, and it, it also depends on what problem you're trying to solve. Like I mentioned earlier, the price of U.S. goods depends greatly on things that happen around the world and can't lose sight of that fact. I think that it's fair to say that the U.S. presence is important and U.S. presence has a stabilizing effect. And whether that is military presence, whether that is economic presence, uh, it is is generally beneficial. And we have seen that to be the case over the years. And so I, I don't buy into the idea that if we ignore it, it'll go away on anything, whether it's climate change or conflict or, you know, global instability. Ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. That's the you know, that's the, the the response of the, the six-year-old.
1: From the data you're looking at, I we likely to see additional interstate wars breaking out as essential resources begin to dwindle. As a bit of an example, if Ethiopia is experiencing a drought and their crops are beginning to die, the government will try and do whatever it can to feed its population, and to do so may decide to start stockpiling water into their dams, which solves the problem for the Ethiopians, but also cuts off water to millions of Egyptians further downstream which would back Cairo into a position to either let millions of Egyptians die due to a lack of water, or go to war with Ethiopia to open the dams and keep the water flowing downstream. The data we have in front of us here is indicating that these kind of scenarios aren't ifs, but whens. Is the DOD preparing for this uptick in interstate conflicts?
3: I think the US is increasingly cognizant of the risk of conflict emerging over these kinds of issues, over these kinds of resource issues and that climate change is gonna exacerbate the tension points and perhaps make conflict or at least uh, crisis more likely. The State Department has started to think about this. I you know, would like to see uh, the sort of regional planning incorporate more of these projections of climate as potential stressors. But you see, for example, the DOD did a climate risk assessment which was a document they published last year that started to look at these tension points and to anticipate them the the intelligence community has put out annual threat assessments that point to these kinds of flashpoints and and are cognizant of them and and so the intelligence community is pretty good at this sort of thing and they have been for quite some time and i i pulled out a 2019 doc you know version of their annual threat assessment and was struck not by the climate section first, but by the section that said, we anticipate there's going to be a global pandemic that will upend the global economy and it's coming soon. And that was 2019 and then in 2020 COVID hit. And I thought, wow, these guys are pretty good at their jobs. And the, in that context, uh, you know, the next section was the, the climate section where they talk about all the climate stresses. So if they were right about the COVID stuff, they're probably right about the climate stuff. I, I, they get credibility in this context. And and so I look at that and I think, okay, you know, there are people predicting and anticipating and trying to figure out how they're going to deal with these challenges in in the government, in particular in the intelligence community. Uh, The question is how does that sort of cascade through all the other federal agencies? What do we need the regional offices at state to do now? Now that that's been predicted, now that they got fair warning, uh, now that they don't, you know, a failure of imagination is not the problem because we've all imagined it already. Um, you know, w- what do they do to reduce the risk and they're going to have to work through that to-do list.
1: So you've been following this data closely for a very long time. And every time the data gets redone, the outcomes seem to look even bleaker. So where do you see the U S in relation to this issue in five to 10 years time?
3: You know, we sit here and and look today, and oh my God, things are worse than they've ever been. This is our worst year as far as global temperatures and as far as wildfires and and natural disasters. In 15 years, we're gonna be looking back, going, "Gosh, I wish I was back in 2020." Right? It is. It is going to be worse. I think is fair to predict. Making a specific guess as to what it's gonna look. I mean, you'll have more recurring flooding on the coasts, and you'll have. You know more energy in our storms and you will have a more navigable arctic and you will have all sorts of challenges that um you know infrastructure at the very least wasn't prepared for that governments will have increasing challenges i mean who would have predicted a third of pakistan was going to be underwater right i mean there are things that are going to happen that we cannot yet predict but we have to be able to expect the unexpected and to prepare for the crisis to come without knowing exactly what it is. Things are going to get worse.
1: So, preparation is going forward for the US to face a whole series of simultaneous calamities. And what we're seeing right here in the data, in the black and white, is that these small problems create bigger problems which create even bigger problems which create regional problems. As an example, a storm in the Caribbean which destroys Haiti, leading to rioting and looting on the street, which then pushes international businesses to flee to the country, which further hurts the Haitian economy, which then leads to more Haitians fleeing into Central and South America. A problem that just affected Haiti now affects the entire region. You can see this in places like China as well, where a drought in China's west, Would likely force China to take water from the glaciers in Xinjiang, which would then lower the supply of water heading over the Tianjin Mountains into Tajikistan, which would mean their hydroelectric power plants, which power about 80% of the country, don't work. So all of Tajikistan plunges into chaos because China had a drought thousands of kilometers away. Small weather events, not even in your country, can have big impacts at home. And to talk about this, we're doing our final guest.
2: Part 3 war games
4: the mechanism that's given me the greatest insight into that i would even call it profound insight is called the climate and security working group of which i've been a member now for about seven years it's composed of retired military um, active duty and retired NOAA, osha i mean even fema Um, Department of Homeland Security, uh, for sure. NASA, we use NASA's computer models, for example, for climate modeling, and others like that who wanted to get on the the train to work with this very existential, if not ultimately existential, (laughs) before it was too late. And one of the things we saw, of course, was that they had to be very careful. If they came, even as retirees, agencies, departments of government, and so forth, who depended on the Congress for their money, because if anything were said too visibly, too publicly, about man-made climate change, adaptation was okay, adaptation to what was inevitable, that the climate always changes, and so forth. Uh, But anything attributing part of the problem, if not a large part of the problem, to humans was verboten. And so I, I sort of grew up in it with with that realization of the stupidity, the ignorance, the media complicity in massive corporate complicity in especially from the fossil fuel industry and others associated to get this really vivid insight I have now of how difficult it was for the lead federal agency. No question. No question. And this comes
1: from my 40 years of experience in the government, the DOD. Colonel Larry Wilkinson is the former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell during the Bush administration. He was also the Associate Director of the State Department's policy planning staff under the directorship of Ambassador Richard Haas, and a member of the staff responsible for East Asia and the Pacific, as well as political, military, and legislative affairs for the region. Before serving in the State Department, Wilkinson also served 31 years in the US Army. And during that time, he was a member of the faculty of the US Naval War College and special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as being deputy and deputy director of the US Marine Corps War College at Quantico. He's taught national security affairs at the George Washington University and is an expert on military and defense policy in the United States. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
4: And and the question loomed large in my mind, why is the Defense Department leading the United States' effort with regard to climate change and is most of it clandestine, as it were? And, you know, you could answer that question pretty easily because, first of all, our legislative branch, the Congress, is purblindly stupid or so awash in cash from the contested industry, if you will, that uh, they can't do anything about it. And they, from time to time, threaten the DOD and others in Department of Homeland Security and elsewhere, with uh, retaliation through withholding portions of their budget if they become very public about it. I'm very happy, I'm elated to say that that has dissipated to a large extent over the last couple, three years as the forecasts have become so difficult to refute, and 95 plus percent of American scientists are with the data in one way or another they know it's real what's happening the contest now is over just how fast is it happening and that's come becoming very very scary right now because we've missed so much with our computer models every time just an example every time we put a new variable into a computer model and make a new run uh the results are worse not better we haven't had an amelioration in a long time Uh, things get worse and part of the reason now feedback loops. The military understands these feedback loops and understands how fast this is coming on and how deleterious ultimately is going to be to their lives in more ways than one.
1: You've talked about climate change being a threat multiplier and an exacerbator of conflicts. So can you take us through what you mean by that?
4: It's interesting that you ask that question because the services, the Army and Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Space Force, Coast Guard to a large extent, because the Coast Guard really understands sea rise, for example, the services have fluctuated a bit on their strategic approaches. All of them now have, unlike most other agencies in the government, actionable and being enacted climate change strategies. Every one of them. Even the National Guard and Reserve components of each of the services have them. For example, the Army just switched its around to a certain extent. Its first threat for a couple of years there was sea level rise. And you imagine why, because so many installations are within a few miles of the coast. Uh, as a matter of fact, about two thirds of America lives within 200 nautical miles of a, of a coast. So that was their not, but they just switched. They switched to drought as their number one threat. In their strategy because basically they understand what drought is going to do to the civilian communities that surround their domestic installations and to a certain extent the over 700 or so that they have overseas and that brought them into realization too that hey it's power it's water it's everything that the civilian community around the federal reservation is going to experience in most cases, almost 100%, the reservation is going to suffer, too, because the dependency is is major uh, on the surrounding civilian population, not to mention situations like we have in Norfolk and have been trying to deal with, along with Homeland Security. And in that, they have discovered that drought is probably the greatest threat to them, particularly out in the U.S. Southwest. You've probably read about that. It's getting very, very dramatic. draconian out there i mean nevada just passed uh, legislation in its state legislature to outlaw grass you now can only have a gravel front yard at your home or your residence or your business no grass no more golf courses can be built and so forth so that that shows you how attentive i think the services are to even the domestic threat now that international threat has got them alarmed to a, to a great extent because they understand this is already being seen this the effects of climate change are already being seen in some cases dramatically in places like Southwest Asia uh, I'll give you a visceral example Saddam Hussein for example tried to eradicate the marsh Arabs the people whose unique lifestyle um required the floodplain of the Tigris Euphrates down around Basra the Persian Gulf and so forth in order to survive well he couldn't do it because they were very resilient people very robust in their lifestyle and customs and he never succeeded in do it well climate change is doing it the combination of the salinity coming out of the Gulf into the soil and creeping more and more inland is killing the reeds the marshes are drying up And the Tigris-Euphrates' flow right now, as one individual in Basra who's communicated with me for some time now, the uh, situation with the Tigris-Euphrates, it's a trickle now. It, It barely provides any water. So the Marsh Arabs having to move or dying off. And that's what's happening. And this leads to the military's conclusion that being the only force on Earth that can not China, not Russia, not Britain, not to the extent that we can, and to the prolonged extent that we can, and with the assets we can, project power. They're looking at this multiplying by five or six times over the next few years. Humanitarian relief, disaster, disaster assistance is what they call it officially. That's going to require enormous amounts of increases in their budget. And they're worried, rightfully so, given our parlous physical situation right now in this country, they're very worried about post-Ukraine. They were worried about it prior to Ukraine, but after Ukraine, they're really worried about it. Now, when the uh, the turmoil, if you will, uh, abates a bit and the pressure on the defense budget becomes really in your face, having enough money to do these operations at the same time they have to maintain their conventional and nuclear capability to to do war they don't see it as being an addition to their budget post-ukraine they see it being coming out of their hide and so that's a real worry to them and a worry is being able to do all these operations and still maintain some kind of war readiness and provide for the security of the country That's a grave concern in our our simulations. The most expert one I saw was done by the Center for Naval Analyses. And granted, this was a worst-case scenario, but now this was a few years ago. Now we're understanding that this worst-case scenario is probably more the likely case scenario. We're probably going to have about half a billion refugees in the world. And when people look at me and sort of blink their eyes, I say, you already got 175 million today. 175 million today. Um, you're, the southern border of the United States and Donald Trump's fence and all that, that's just a precursor. That's just a precursor. Wait until people start flowing from the global south and coming to coastlines that are now just oceans, like Florida's coast coastline and its panhandle. They're going to be coming in boats. They're going to be coming any way they can come. And as this simulation showed about half of these people are going to be male and about half of that half are going to be under 30. What we saw in the simulation was what we call the peer powers, which runs roughly from Tokyo through Washington, across to London, Moscow, Beijing. The peer powers who are not suffering quite as badly yet from the effects of climate change begin to man their borders and run these incredibly large refugee camps. We're talking millions of people. That requires all manner of security. It requires all manner of legal help because of refugee law, which is quite complicated, as we've seen on our own southern border. And then after about a decade of doing this in this simulation, and by the way, everyone of the peer powers except Russia was playing in this simulation. Russia I did have an observer there. And what happens during that decade of trying to run these refugee camps is most of the countries, if not all of them, are just overwhelmed. And so what they begin to do is cancel out the refugee camps and put machine guns and troops on, the, on their borders, and they begin to shoot people. And we sort of stopped the simulation there. When we briefed the international component of this game, I remember one particular young German leapt to his feet and objected to the fact that his country would do anything like that. And the gamer just reached under the podium, the lectern, brought up the list of game participants. And, of course, it had been all manner of people all across the globe who had participated. And he read the names of a former German chancellor, a former head of German armed forces, a former German ambassador to the United States, and so forth, who had actually participated in the simulation and made some of these decisions young man sat down somewhat chagrined i think this was a very realistic simulation and uh, although it was billed as a worst case simulation i think from what i see the complexity of the feedback loops and so forth we might be faster arriving at that sort of scenario than we predicted in the simulation and the military looks at this the defense complex looked this looks at this as i think it's fair to say it's number one challenge for the foreseeable future. And you don't see an end to it out to the end of the 21st century and beyond. So that's a heck of a thing for the military to have to plan for. It's almost like it's war planning that it never loses that perspective. It has to keep that perspective, at least for a century. Um, That's a very daunting prospect to have two things that are that long-term, security and potential war. And on the other hand, existential threat from the climate effects that are causing the planet to disregard human life.
1: (laughs) There are a number of schools of thought on how to be combating the effects of climate change best, with a particular focus on the near term. On one extreme, there are people who suggest the U.S. should go ultra-interventionist, and anywhere on the planet we see a natural disaster, the U.S. should be there within 24 hours with the Army Corps of Engineers ready to help. And on the other extreme, there are people that suggest the US should go ultra isolationist and the bunkering down in the States and abandoning everyone else to their fate is a solution. Where do you see the flaws in those two particular approaches? Well, both
4: have flaws, but the latter one you, you described briefly is what our simulations showed us ultimately was going to be the end game, not the, not the end game where everybody says, oh, I give up, <laughs> but the end game in terms of US policy that we and, and the policy of the peer powers, we, we simply won't be able to tolerate it. Um, and where it goes from there is anybody's guess. I, I would say we probably would all be courting everywhere along that line. What I, I would call in today's terms, yesterday's terms, what I'm seeing even now, facias, or some form of authoritarian government, because we would see the democratic process as being inimical to our survival and we put someone in charge to, quote, take care of this problem for as long as it takes to take care of it, unquote. Basically, from what I've seen in similar circumstances in the past, of much less existential proportions, um, I I don't have any problem seeing the line from what we're doing now, for example, to authoritarianism, for an extended period of time and once you're into it it's very difficult to get out of it as history has demonstrated conclusively i think to to handle the problems and the acceptance of the people as it were uh, in doing this even the the clamor for it to be done Uh, in that sense i think we're looking at a future that's extremely dangerous and you'll see such things as we've looked at called now basically geoengineering Governments become desperate and those governments that have the resources, Beijing, maybe Delhi, certainly Washington, maybe London, maybe Paris, maybe Berlin, attempting these geoengineering feats, which we have thus far classified as probably as dangerous or more so as the creeping effects, accelerating effects of climate change itself. And what do I mean by geoengineering? Well, there are all manner of things that are being suggested. You hear Elon Musk and some of the other billionaires talk about it sometimes. Everything from seeding the clouds to try and attempt to attenuate the effects of carbon dioxide and other dangerous chemicals going into the atmosphere, methane being probably the one scaring us the most right now, coming out of Siberia, Alaska, and melting tundra all over the inner or just outside the Arctic Circle, which is just tantamount to disaster in our minds if it keeps on and intensifies the way it looks like it's going to. Trying to figure out a way to geoengineer the Earth, the planet, the atmosphere around the planet, so that we attenuate some of this and thus extend our time to deal with it. As I said, though, most of the ideas, and that's a questionable description of some of them, to this end that I've heard and been briefed on are as scary or more so as the effects of climate change itself. So that's another danger, though. And the military in, invariably, inevitably, would be probably sucked into being, uh, maybe the Space Force comes to mind immediately, uh, implementers or at least part, partial implementers of whatever geoengineering feat had to be performed and thus become the uh, the people who are blamed for having done it. Uh, so that's another worry that they have it's esoteric right now arcane it's out there on the fringes but it's nonetheless there there's a whole whole gamut of things that the you know the military is probably the only entity in the United States and this is from 40 plus years of experience in the government that thinks strategically and then to a certain extent in its planning process acts strategically in cor- in accordance with that thinking in other words um, nobody else does. Everybody else in the United States government, whether no matter their complaints to the contrary or their protests to the contrary, operates out of their inbox. The crisis du jour, that's how they operate. The National Security Council operates that way. It has a strategic think tank within it, but it never thinks strategically, or when it does, its results are totally ignored. Just like our strategic think tank at State Department, the policy planning staff, You can't think ahead in the United States government because it's politically inexpedient to do so. And it requires a lot of work and a lot of money applied to things that might not necessarily come true tomorrow so your political situation is enhanced. So we do things on a daily basis. That is anathema. That is absolutely negative to what needs to be done with regard to the climate crisis. (laughs) And so we don't do very well.
1: So what do you think it would take for the public to get fully on board with what needs to be done to combat climate change properly, to treat this issue like the U.S. treated World War II, a national, all-hands-on-deck approach to it? What is the event in your mind that would make the public get on board?
4: Unfortunately, I think that's out there a ways. I I think the profoundness of the crisis has to be something like, and I'm just giving examples here just to make my point, three-quarters of the panhandle of Florida goes underwater. Maybe you lose Norfolk and everything that those East Coast shipyards are the thing for the Navy. I mean, that's where nuclear carriers are retrofitted and so forth. In fact, we had to spend 40 million just a year or two ago in order to uh, increase by about 24 inches. The walls on the bay where this is where carriers are retrofitted because you would have a similar situation that you had in Japan with the tsunami and the nuclear reactor flooded, you'd have a carrier reactor that would be flooded. And while it wouldn't be as devastating as Japan's was, it would certainly be devastating to the Norfolk area. So we had, to, we had to build extensions on those bays so there was no chance of a carrier having a nuclear reactor open and being retrofitted or maybe even replaced and have suddenly a Category 4 or 5 hurricane come up, the surge come in and wash into that open nuclear reactor. Those are the kinds of things that have to be done. Um, When you're looking at those sorts of actions, you're looking at adaptation, of course. You're not looking at amelioration. When you start talking about humans contributing and doing something to ameliorate that contribution, now at least you get attention, but you don't
1: get the dollars and you don't get the strategy. If we do see this projected uptick in border conflicts over the next decade, do you think the United States is more likely to get deeply involved, like they have in Ukraine, or are we more likely to see Washington pick and choose winners and help with some conflicts whilst completely ignoring others?
4: I think the simulations we've done are fairly instructive in that regard. I I, I do think that there'll be a sequence of events where countries like the United States, and the United States will influence us, of course, as it always does, Uh, if through no other means, it's sheer power financially and otherwise, um, trying to accommodate the problems. And by that, I mean they'll take action to perform disaster relief and humanitarian assistance missions as they can. They will... Uh, do what they can to attenuate the situation in various places where it looks like it might be, a, uh, there might be some capacity to do that. And it will encourage Beijing, um, it will encourage India, it will encourage other countries to do the same thing and might even bring some pressure to bear politically and financially and otherwise to cause that to happen to get them to help um in their regions and maybe even in the case of the Chinese globally I remember when we brought the first contingent of Chinese troops into Haiti a lot of people were opposed to it yours truly certainly wasn't nor was my boss Colin Powell because we realized that here's a significant contingent of troops that needs to be educated and trained in peacekeeping and peace enforcement operations and ultimately in disaster relief and disaster assistance operations. have you seen the Chinese fishing fleet lately it's bigger than the united states navy the british navy the japanese navy the indonesian Navy. it's bigger than anybody's navy in the world and bigger than most combined navies Um, they have so many fishing vessels it's incredible and many of them are equipped for the kinds of things i'm talking about or could be equipped very readily for that and so there's a huge asset if we have to start delivering water in vast quantities to certain areas delivering food in vast quantities or other kinds of humanitarian relief or disaster assistance or God forbid, evacuating a lot of these people.
1: You've been with the U.S. military for a very, very long time. How have you seen this issue develop over the last few decades?
4: 1984. I'm at U.S. Pacific Command, but we call it U.S. Think Pack because our... Chiefs, then, our four-star admiral, in this case, we're called Commander-in-Chief Pacific. But anyway, I'm serving an admiral who was a four-star later to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff before Powell, Bill Crow, And into our office, with all the regalia and fare the well and so forth that uh, one gives to any head of state, we just had, a what, a 17 or 19-gun salute or whatever on the, on the Pearl Harbor uh, entryway, the president of Palau a small little island state in the Pacific. You probably know where it is. Uh, We were looking at Kiribati. We were looking at the Solomons, which the Chinese are now looking very hard at. We were looking at Vanuatu, all these different island states, and saying to ourselves, well, what's the future here? Here he walks into our executive conference room, and the first words out of his mouth to our admiral were, Admiral, my island's disappearing. What are you going to do about it? Uh, 1984, and he was right. Uh, Sea rise was perceptible at that time, and most of the world knows nothing about this. We began, uh, in our strategy for the Pacific area, 35 nations, we began to work on getting the Australians, the New Zealanders, and others who would accept people from the Pacific Island states, Micronesian states, Polynesian states, um, to do that to retrain them, reeducate them, retool them, if you will, and make them able to survive in their environments. And slowly but surely, we begin to do that. You know, it was minuscule at the time. But now, those states are understanding that they've got to do this big time. Over the next 30, 40 years, they probably are going to disappear, or they're going to become untenable for living. Um, That's how serious it is. No, No adaptation is going to save that. Um, more and more island states and people close to coastlines, especially coastlines like Virginia's, which is which are subsiding. So you've got the coastline subsiding about an inch or so a year, and then you've got sea rise coming. Uh, you've got a real problem. Uh, and in Virginia, we just had a new satellite survey, the first real accurate survey of our coastline. And it came out against us rather than for us as it did on most of the east coast we had been overestimating the height of the sea line it's a little bit less than it was now that makes sea rise that much more accelerated because you don't have the coastline height you thought you had particularly going to be dramatic for north carolina and the outer banks
1: What do you think is the main solution here? Apart from what we're already doing, is there some sort of policy or mobilization that the U.S. military could be doing to actually tackle this properly?
4: I've been dealing with young people all across the country, young people 40 and under, PhDs, doctors, lawyers, engineers, and so forth, exploring their willingness to create a climate change core. That's what I'm calling it. And that's not just something I pulled out of the air. It's symbolic of FDR's triple C, C C C C CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, of which my father was a member at the ripe old age of 17. And they're very interested in it. Young people, particularly young people, are very interested in it. And I'm saying you need 12 million people in it. And people are coming back from Cornell and Stanford and other places saying, 12 million people, how would you ever get 12 million? I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. In 1939, George Marshall put forth a proposition and we later fulfilled it for 12 million men, mostly men, some women, under arms for World War II. And that was an underestimate. We almost got it badly underestimated when we invaded Europe in 1944, because we didn't have enough manpower. But there were 140 million people in the United States at that time. There are 340 million people now. 12 million people is a drop in the bucket. How would you pay them, they say? You'd pay them with three square meals a day and a tent over their heads. That's how you'd pay them. And what we would do is deal first with the domestic challenges of the climate change. Well, what are those? Have you been awake for the past 10 years? We are wearing out completely. I was just out there. I was just out in Eastern Washington, the panhandle of Idaho and Western Montana, where the pall of the smoke is in your face from the forest fires 24 seven. We're wearing them out. We're wearing out the C-130s that dump water and chemicals on the fires. We're wearing out the helicopters. We're wearing out the firefighters. They can't last much longer. They have essentially told me that. Um, They're they're passing out in their camps after 24-7 fighting a fire. It's dangerous for them when they get that fatigued. And you're going to have five times, if not more, fires. And so you need a lot more firefighters. How about flood control and how about disaster relief domestically in the United States? You're going to need lots of people trained and able to do that. But I think we're going to need something like that domestically. We're going to leave a lot of young people who are full of energy and trained to a fairly well to do the tasks that they have to do. And they're going to have to handle the domestic challenges of climate change and potentially in some kind of swap, maybe, into uniforms, say, for a three-year tour or whatever with the Navy or the Coast Guard or the Air Force or the Army or Marine Corps or whatever, do it internationally because we're not gonna have enough people within the armed forces to do these tasks that they're gonna have to do if we elect to do them. And having the capability to do them might be persuasive in that decision um, and save the people that we can save as this crisis really comes upon us in the proportions I think it is going to.
1: Where do you see the US being by the end of the decade? What do you see the headlines being by that point in time?
4: I think the headlines are going to be what I'm reading this morning about Florida and the hurricane that is now ravaging that country and has ravaged Puerto Rico and Cuba. Headlines from Cuba, we didn't even pay any attention to. This has been the most disastrous hurricane for Cuba in its history. That's the kind of thing that has to catch people's attention if it's treated the way it should be by the media. You know, a wake up call. Look, now they could have done this with Houston. They could have done this with the ship channel in Houston. 200 million dollars worth of damage from those last two hurricanes. They could have done it with Florida before when we had a 4 billion dollar air force base completely wiped out, losing many F22s because they were cannibalizing them at the time. Another story there, and they couldn't fly them out. So we lost them 400 million dollars in airplane. Um, these are the kinds of things that need to make it to the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post and uh, the magazines and other things mostly need to make it in the social media and tell people look, this is the future. This is your future. Wake up.
1: Climate change is almost certainly the biggest challenge we will face as a united species. And much like every alien movie, I hope it's one that we all put aside our national differences for and fight against. As with this issue, it doesn't matter if you're in Australia, or you're in Uzbekistan, or you're in Denmark. This is coming home. But I'm not all doom and gloom yet. As humans, we've done some pretty impressive things over the years. We went from the first biplane to putting a man in the moon in the space of one person's lifetime. And the reason we did it? Because we wanted to. Because we needed to. I don't want you to walk away from this piece with doom in your heart. Or feel that there is no point recycling your cans anymore, that it's all too far gone, because those small steps like recycling or getting solar panels on your house actually do help. What we need to do is move past debates between scientists and core lobbyists and toward preparation. If you have an uncle or a friend who is sceptical about climate change, fine. I don't personally care if they claim space lasers are making the planet hotter, you rarely win ground debating with those kind of people over semantics. What we need to get from them is an agreement that no matter what, we need to begin to prep for this. What we need to do is convince them that the time is now to prepare for this. That if we don't do anything, and they're wrong, that we'll end up like one of those cities the Mongols burnt to the ground. But in the small chance they were right, but we did all the preparation work, we made a better country, a more energy-secure country, and at least we're ready for anything. Do I believe we're in a lot of trouble at the moment? Yes. Does the data sitting in front of me serve as Time's New Roman-enabled nightmare fuel? Yes. But do I believe that something can be done to mitigate this? Yes. And that's what we're here to talk about with this series. And I hope you join me for part two. Thank you so much for tuning into the first episode of this brand new mini-series, and we're thrilled to get this one out. It's been amazing to work with a team over at Mission Climate Project and be able to map out things like just how much certain rivers or lakes are likely to shrink, and then marry that up with our data that we have from our security experts on how much extremism has grown in these regions with each percentage point the lake has shrunk over the past, giving us a comprehensive data-driven look at what is right around the corner. There are four more episodes left of this series which will come out over the next nine weeks, and we hope you stick with us for this one. If this is the first time you've checked out the program, or you want to find out more about the project or anything else we're up to, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at The Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Oz, Oz in Australia. And if you want to check out some of the great work Mission Climate Project's doing, you can find all of their stuff on the website asktmp.com. This is a bit of a different project but we're still going to keep some consistencies with the red line, so here are our three book recommendations for this episode. The first is The New Map by Daniel Yergin, for a look at how energy politics has reshaped the past of many of today's nations. The second is States and Nature, The Politics of Climate Change by Joshua W. Bushby, for a look at the political side of this debate. And the third is The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, for a look at a possible near future. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Sharon Burke, John Corgan, and Larry Wilkinson. All of you were just amazingly lovely and helpful throughout this process, and I want to thank you for coming on the show again. I also want to say thanks to my staff who've done so much work to put this project together. Wade McCarr, the producer, as well as our former producer, who did a lot of the work in the early stages of the writing here. I'd also like to thank Perry Grace, Danielle Zavella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, as well as a special thanks to Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, as well as our in-house climate expert, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Jamie Tanu, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. I can't tell you how much extra work this team has put in to put this series together, and I'm incredibly thankful for all of their help on this one. In addition to my team, I want to say thanks to the team over at TMP, Lou Munden, Peter Riggs, Ben Bowie, Yumiko Jimbo, Willie Munden, Ivana Pavkova, and Laurent Barthélémy. The TMP team has produced some amazing research and data for this one, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have them join us on this pretty huge undertaking. The Green Line will be back in a fortnight, and the Red Line will be airing a normal episode in a week's time. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and
2: opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline Podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely
0: our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.